ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the UI Breakfast Podcast. I'm your host, Jane Portman, and today I invite you to listen to another special episode with Ellie Blum, the queen of customer interviews and user onboarding consultant. If you enjoyed this episode, please head over to userlist.com slash podcast to see the entire season. Thanks again, and let's give it a listen. This episode is brought to you by UserList, a lifecycle messaging tool for your SaaS product. At UserList, our mission is to make your founder journey more enjoyable and less overwhelming. That's why we built an email automation tool that does exactly what you need, no more, no less. Manage your users, segment them, and get in touch throughout their journey, all based on their behavior. Try UserList free whenever you're ready at userlist.com. Hey, Ali. Hey, Jane. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you doing? We're also great. We're so honored to have you at our disposal to ask all these questions and, uh, you know, tap into your experience. But before we do that, tell us a bit more about yourself and how you position yourself these days as a consultant, because you have such an extensive history of, you know, doing all kinds of things. But one thing you have in common is the SaaS companies and their experience slash research, right? Yes. Well, first of all, thank you again so much for having me. And the the backstory to how I got to the way that I help companies now is I started with onboarding emails as the I came from a writing background, conversion copywriting backgrounds. When I first started working with SaaS companies, the thing that was most interesting to me was onboarding emails. And there were a few reasons. And first, it's a nice, tightly scoped frame, uh, time frame. So companies, that's where the, the new customers coming in, they're learning who you are, how you can help them. And that's the first time you're also meeting the customer, which is just such an interesting moment of when, where the customer context meets the business context. And it's also a really interesting moment because that's when people are really highly motivated. I come from a conversion copywriting background as well. So the emails that we're writing there are very heavily motivated to helping people accomplish specific concrete actions, which is really, really fun to be able to be close to the action when you're writing something. And over time, one of the things that sort of spun out of that for me was that First of all, the emails have qualitative data as an input and quantitative data as well. And every company that I've worked with has some measure of understanding that quantitative data matters. It's important. Quantitative data has a seat in every boardroom, but qualitative data, not so much. So what I started noticing is I would be hired to write a set of onboarding emails and I would say, okay, well, the first step is we're going to do some user interviews. We're going to do some look at what types of actions tend to lead people to be really successful, see what we need to be driving people toward. And the more that I did that, the more that I kept finding, well, you're hiring me to do emails, but there's all of these other steps that should really have been in place before you got to the point of having me do the emails. There's no clear understanding of what people should be doing when they first sign up. It's really unclear what a successful onboarding experience looks like versus an unsuccessful one. And even when people do know that, for example, the first time you come in to a product, you need to, oh, I don't know, let's say it's a, it's a decorating product and you need to have 
you're designing a room and you need to add three items to your room. I don't know. I'm redecorating my office now. This is top of mind for me. A lot of times that's not what the onboarding experience will reflect. It will still be something that's along the lines of a tour or along the lines of, you know, here's how you can do things with this, as opposed to we're going to walk you through all the different steps to get there. And even when that was true, the language inside the product would often still not be matching the context that people come that people have when they come into the product. So I started coming in being hired to do emails, would do research as a matter of course, would start to notice that the real problem for many unsuccessful onboarding experiences, or or we'll say low activation metrics, is that the initial experience just wasn't supporting people. And that started opening my world to say, okay, we're going to look at the experience design and we're really going to double down. We, we, it's me going to double down on the qualitative data aspect and doing research because that would, that ultimately drives so many of the decisions. So today I'm still working closely in onboarding, but one or two, two strategy layers above to say, okay, what is the context when our customer comes to us? What's their world look like? And what part of our world should we be showing them? And how can we set it up so that they ha- they achieve what they are here to achieve, that they make progress their first time here instead of coming in, blasting through a slideshow that they were nobody wants to read and then bumping over to the curtains tab on their, all the different color curtains they're considering all the rest of their browser curtains on the mind. So now I help companies who are working on the strategy component of their onboarding So what do we need to say? How do we design that experience in the product? How do we connect it to the emails that we're writing? And how do we make sure that it's really all about those users? So what, like all all those wonderful words, they're (laughs) so pretty vague. And of course, I'm going to ask you a vague question in return. What does successful onboarding look like in your opinion? It's not the slideshows. What is it about being supportive without interrupting the natural flow? What is good onboarding? Onboarding is good progress in the context of what your customer is doing when they arrive and what they can do with your product. By which I mean, if you're selling a product that helps people do one thing and do it over and over and over again, the first time they come in, help them do that one thing. But there are other situations where you may have a product that you're not going to be as successful as you could be. You're not going to reach that success milestone of retention the first time, the fifth time, the 10th time. So what can you do instead? You can take that experience and break it down into its smallest components and say, okay, if we know what the one activity that is likely to turn these trialists into long-term customers happens on day 13 of their trial, what are all the steps that lead up to it? Is it 10 steps? Is it 12 steps? Is it three steps? And how do we get people working backwards to make sure that they're reaching those milestones in an order that makes sense as opposed to, hey, here's all the things you can do. I can add that there is another type of product that I can testify userless belongs to is where the scope of things that need to be done is is reasonably like okay. Like it doesn't need to change organizational habits. It's just reasonable scope of work. But the users have a certain mindset to adopt, a certain you know, scope of knowledge to gain before they can do that successfully. And uh, we do have a tiny seat, a couple more products, fellow founders who deal with the same problem. And uh, for for them, super efficient way was to, to do demos as the only way of doing that applied knowledge for a specific company. But 
you know, making a product demo only is also not a silver bullet, right? You still want to do self-serve. That's what we're here for, scalability. This is so true. Because one of the things that's really important is that the context matters so much. And there are so many times, I'll use ES, email service providers as an example, where you come in, you're really excited, but then you have to, you hit this this block immediately where it's, oh, my, my fields, my tags, what do I use? I have to stop and come up with a whole new taxonomy when I'm here really just trying to email somebody or set up an email thing and check <laughs> it off, off my list and be done with it. And so what do you do in the context? And this is I guess kind of why it's progress given the context. What do you do when the 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 momentum has a natural point of friction when people are coming in? I think it's really interesting because some of the time there's one tool that I'm working with or one team I'm working with now where we see this a lot. There there's a lot of excitement about the outcome and a lot of buy-in on on getting there. And it's a hard new big concept to implement in their team and they need lots of people involved. But there's no, uh, there's so many things that go into setting up a new system that it's almost like you're just, you have to learn how to do a lot of new skills that you may not have had already that aren't necessarily going to serve you in the long run. The way that I, I kind of compare it is like taxes. Like you, you, you got to figure out how to file your taxes, but outside of doing your taxes, that does not have much utility. And what do you do when the thing that's essential to getting started with a product is something that only has utility in the moment that you're doing, that you're doing it to set up the product. And it's not going to help you in all of these other ways. Then it's this point of like, ugh, like it's a point of, I don't want to do this because it's, 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 especially with our audience of founders where we're, very biased toward action. We want to get the thing done. We don't want to stop and do the process docs or the taxonomy development or figuring out all the different elemental structures that need to go into support the system. We didn't start businesses to build systems. Like we were excited about all these other cool things. So in those cases, I find myself very often encouraging like high touch it's, oh my gosh, it's so interesting because there's the teams that I work with, some of them work with really small companies and they still have, will do demos and how you can talk to humans and they do like significantly better than people who leave people out on their own. And then there's people who have to do all this work and you'll never hear from them and they're just successful on their own. And it's very fascinating. Well, let's talk a little bit about the organizational structure. Because you've been in small companies, large companies, indie founders, and huge um, enterprises, and uh, this like <laughs> organizational taxonomy of having the marketing department and the product department, and where does onboarding even belong? Where does onboarding even belong is a question that I have never, I have not stopped asking since I got really excited about onboarding, and. The, okay, so there's where it currently shakes out. So very occasionally, very rarely, I will see some teams will have onboarding specialists or onboarding departments, and there are people who are picking up the phones, helping people get started. More commonly, it's artificially split down the middle between product and marketing, or if you have the capability, or if you're working with typically larger companies, enterprise, it'll be customer success as well, and they'll be a little bit more handholdy for like a huge account. This is the challenge that I keep running into and why I started wanting to go this one to two layers up above building the assets is because if you're hiring someone in a marketing department to do marketing emails as one component of an experience that 
the customers don't care, it's product and marketing are together, then that's just not setting anybody up for success. It silos the output in a way that's kind of, in a way that's self-defeating almost, in a way that's really ignorant of all the, all the data that we have says you should, like people are going, like if you know that people read an email and you're putting in a CTA to go use a feature, then why is one team responsible for the email and another team is responsible for the feature? It just doesn't make any sense to me. So I've been thinking a lot about this over the course of the last year, which is, okay, we have this very common structure in SaaS teams. Where did it come from? I'm not sure. I have to do a little bit more research here, but we have marketing and we have product and we have customer success. Why? Like our businesses are not Procter and Gamble. We don't, we know what our revenue milestones are. We know what we, that there's different types of expertise and different types of data and different types of contexts that we need to nudge people along in any kind of subscription business. So why do we organize around product and marketing and not acquisition, activation, retention, and so on, where we have product experts, marketing experts working together at each of these stages. And a concrete example of this is, is onboarding is one of my, my favorite. You often like, I'm lately seeing more teams that will start to say, let's look at the onboarding experience in the product and the emails together as one experience and the data, like use one set of qualitative data to inform both of these sets of decisions. You're going to have writers, designers, developers all in the room at the same time, working through these steps of the process to say, before we even build the thing. We're going to talk about how we position it before we even finish the designs where the emails are already being developed and in flight, which is in stark opposition to how it is more commonly done, where the marketing team will find out a couple of weeks before a product feature is set to launch or a new onboarding experience is happening. And they have to scramble to come up with a couple of emails to promote it. Why would we do it that way? We don't have to do it that way. We can do it. We can do it in a way that makes more sense. So, okay. So the context of how we organize teams This is a challenge because once a team is organized in such a way, it's hard to reorganize it again. And sometimes it can be done nimbly. Sometimes it can be done without strong opposition, but it's, it's going to be more difficult. Solo founders are in this really, really, really unique position of being able to, solo founders are still small teams of five people or so being able to say from the outset, we're going to build a company that is organized based on how our business operates and based on what we know needs to happen, as opposed to, you know, oh, I guess the biggest company that we're competing against has a CMO and a head of product. We can say we're going to have a head of acquisition and a head of activation. Like that's a choice you can make and how cool to be able to be in a position now before you have that entrenched. So you can get to the point when you're 40 or 50 people and you have this nice structure of, I have to draw this new org map out, but there's, it's like a research level qualitative data at the top and, and quant at the top as well, that same data set spilling out into all of these different, these functions. So I'm really, really excited to see teams today that are really small and getting, you know, you're a scrappy startup. Everybody wears a lot of hats anyway. What a neat opportunity to say, why don't we just make these hats, like square up all these responsibilities based on what people are based on the natural structure of our business. And then in 10 years, of course, you you know, you're going to have your giant companies with your CMOs and probably a lot of, um, I shouldn't, I don't know why I'm ragging on CMOs. I shouldn't be ragging on CMOs. What I'm, what I'm ragging on is the, the concept and the structure 
of having a surface focused C-suite as opposed to a customer milestone focused C-suite. And that's still going to exist, but how cool to be part of like a way of changing it, the way of like attracting people who are excited. This is how, I mean, organize your, if you want to attract people who like solving problems, organize your company around the problems that you're solving rather than the surfaces that you're going to sit on. <laughs> I like the surfaces part. It's just really well put. Cool. What kind of lessons can you share from your consulting practice with our founder listeners that they can apply in their smaller teams? Um, and I would love to hear some systematic approaches that you would use when you take up a new client and you all agree that they have an onboarding problem. What do you do to resolve this? What are the steps? What's the action plan? So the first step is to plan and conduct a jobs to be done research project. Jobs to be done. Oh my gosh. We spoke on UI breakfast a couple of years ago and it was still something we needed to, to introduce. And now it's fairly common, which is really cool. But the way that I like to frame jobs to be done in the context of onboarding is that they're often called switch interviews. So really what you're trying to do when you conduct this kind of research is understand why somebody switched. So you want to find people who have recently started using your product. If you can, within the last 30 days, depending on what kind of tool you have, they may not be feasible, but they've started using it recently. And there's, there's some kind of indicator that they're successful. So if you know, for example, that people who buy curtains the first time they log into your decorating SaaS. I don't know why this is still, this is such a silly thing. It's still not a real company, but okay. If you know people do something the first time they log in or the second or the third, that tends to be successful, successful, talk to this group of people who are really successful first. And when you're framing out how you're going to, to do this interview, the goal is documentary, like you're filming a documentary. The goal is past tense. Every, all the questions are about what happened that led you there. What did you do before? What was going on when you switched? Who else did you talk to about switching? What was the day that you switched when you first tried using it? What was that like? You're really trying to understand something that has already happened. And there's so much that goes into running an interview that gets you valid data and really useful data. But two of my favorite questions are, and then what happened? And then what happened? And then what happened? And what was that like? How did that feel? What was that like? How did that feel? Over and over and over on repeat. Or tell me more. Uh, so you don't let anyone get away with giving you a one-word answer if you if you can. And then once you have this set of data, you have you'll get some really interesting insights about what people were doing. You're going to learn what I like to call their discovery habits. So did people go find you on podcasts? Do they go ask for a solution in Facebook? Did their friend or coworker mention you? Do they happen just to be walking by your product in a store? And this isn't true as much for SaaS, but was it an impulse decision? And if so, what led up to that? How did they know that they could trust you with that kind of impulse? And that's going to give you insight into say, okay, what's the context people are in before they come to us? Maybe even how do we go do outreach there? And it's going to tell you what they're hoping to accomplish in those first few moments that they're there, what they really thought you were, your product was all about. And you might find that it doesn't match up with what your product is actually about. It may find that you may find that the thing that people sign up to do it's not actually the thing that you're promoting the most, or it's like they just found this other feature and that's the thing that they're really excited about. And you're also going to find out how, what it was like when they were first getting started. If you have a product, this is so interesting. One of, oh, one of my favorite studies was working with 
a product that gets adopted by teams. So what we tried to do was to say, let's talk with the person who's the product champion and then all of the other people that they invited, not all, one or two or three to see, okay, what what was the thing that they did to introduce the, the product to their team? And then from the team member's perspective, how did they learn about it? What did they feel like? And then we were able to segment those learnings out into two different sets of onboarding emails down the line because we could say, all right, you're a product champion. You care really strongly. You're already sold. You're a much higher level of awareness. You're being invited. You probably are being invited without as much enthusiasm. So how can we, how can we meet you where you are? How can we empathize with the fact that you probably don't want to learn a new piece of software, but your boss is making you or your coworker invited you and you feel like you have to, but you don't see the, the output or the, the outcome for you. So we take that jobs to be done style study and say, what, what have we learned about the context? And then, or while that's happening, I'll also like to set up a generative, like an email question that says, what's going on in your world that goes out to new users, the, the welcome email, and then it comes back with new responses. I've seen this email generate hundreds, thousands of depending on how large your company is, of responses and people telling you exactly what they are doing when they sign up. So you can set it, leave it, let it run. And then you get over time, they're telling you why they're here. You have the answer. Why do people sign up? What makes them successful? What do they want out of us? They're telling you. They're, they're telling you in the moment when they have that momentum. So we'll see like a short snippet or like a thousand word piece. Let me interrupt your train of thought that largely depends on the audience, because as soon as you get to product people, founders and other savvy folks, like you stop receiving those because I can sniff that from a mile, like as a, <laughs> as a person. And uh, we know all these tricks. We know like everything about NPS service, all these questions that are supposed to be generating engagement. And it all is just like, one big fatigue for a specific audience that knows what it means. So like working with mere mortals is much easier in some aspects because they can buy into that. A large part of us won't like, especially in B2B, that's really fun. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, what's interesting is I find that the most, the places where this kind of, you're right, it doesn't work in a hundred percent of places. I set it up anyway, because I can never I'm never sure what the research is going to say until I do it. I'm always surprised. That should be like number one sentiment for anyone doing research. Yes. Like the fact that I shared this anecdotal data doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. It's just like some of the disappointments you can get. But yeah. you can also get surprises, right? Yes. I did this once recently and I guess it was a little while ago. And we tried to interview, we tried to recruit so many people. We tried to get people to respond to our emails and it was just crickets. We did not get anything. And then I worked with, I worked with some other teams that do research or the customers do research. They're very familiar with the tactics. And I think I sent like 11 emails and I got 10 interviews because they were they were so excited to be on the other side of it, or I don't know. I'm sure there were a lot of other reasons as well. So yeah. So I like to set that up as a way of, because it also gives you this interesting test to see how engaged are people when they're first signing up. Do we have an audience comprised primarily of people who are like, mm, I do not want to engage in you this way. And you may also have some insight ahead of time to say that that's not going to be the right way to go about it. If you're selling giant enterprise plans, like maybe you're not going to ask the 
I'll brag on the CMO again, but the CMO who signs up for your for your tool, maybe you're routing them a different place and you're not sending them the, the same welcome email, which is why the context is so important. But the, um, yeah, having it there and if it doesn't work, you turn it off. If it works, you have all this, this amazing data. And then from there, it's about looking at what people are trying to do and then looking at comparing that to what the quantitative data says people are actually doing. So people can come in, they say, I need this, I want this, this is where it hurts. And it's really important and really helpful context. And then seeing how that matches, like, is there a disconnect between people, what people say they want and what they actually want? Maybe, maybe not. There's an ideal way of approaching onboarding strategy and understanding everything. And then there's the way that makes a lot of trade-offs based on availability of resources, based on availability of expertise, based on being a solo founder and onboarding is one of 35 projects on your plate. So where can you cut corners? Well, I'll say that where can you cut corners is a terrible question, but where can you do the most high impact kind of work? That's it. That's going to give you, if you only do a user research, jobs to be done research study, you're going to get a lot of insight about what people are doing and it's going to recommend a whole number of different next steps. It might say, first, go take a look at your onboarding. Next, go take a look at your emails. It might say that people people are successful the first time, but they just forget about you. So you need to be reconnecting with them afterwards in emails. The next two things I like to say are just, you know, make sure your onboarding experience helps people accomplish the thing in their pro- in your product that you know is going to lead them to be successful and make sure your emails support that as well, which is a shorthand of approximately 10,000 words of information. It's, it's hardly anything, but that's why I like the research because it's, it's the most important one. That's why I say that. How do you figure out in those interviews, what is the, um, what does the success look like? Cause it's so different for many products and for each product, there are different levels. And we had a conversation with Ramley John here of product led, and he was really putting stress on that, you know, this activation aha first moment, it's not enough. It's not enough for, for the product to really get adopted. So how do you figure out those levels of success and how do you then assist user into getting there? So what does it mean to be successful? I think is kind of a fundamental question. The way that you mentioned Romley said, you know, it's not all about the aha moment. It's also not all, I think you said that, and it's also not about the activation metric alone, though those are two pretty clear and strong signals for many tools. It's about the, the aha moments, like an internal kind of feeling where you can start to see yourself in some kind of new future, in some kind of new world. So success, again, it's kind of like progress. Do I, am I feeling like I'm making some kind of progress here? Have I solved some kind of problem? Now, how do you get people to actually tell you this? Maybe it's that you don't assume that they are. Maybe it's about going into a conversation or an interview with just curiosity about what's there and what, what they're feeling, what they're experiencing. So when I've, whenever I plan a jobs to be done style interview, I'm not actually looking for success. Like I'm not doing a sentiment analysis. I'm not assuming that they're successful because somebody could feel they're successful and not actually have made any kind of progress. Somebody could still be very cranky and have done, been really successful. Anna Jacobson gave a great talk a couple years ago at MicroConf where she said her, uh, a lot of the customers she says, don't go after happy customers. Happy customers might be successful. 
But your successful customers could be cantankerous curmudgeons. They could be constantly complaining. And they're complaining because they care, because something about your product is helping them. Using your product is still better than not using your product. And they're telling you what needs to happen. Now, of course, of course, of course, you have to take it with a grain of salt. People are going to complain and you can't listen to everyone. And there's a, there's a lot of taking it with a grain of salt. So what I would say maybe then is the goal of Jobs To Be Done interview, when you're talking to people who have started using their, your product within the last 30 days, who you have selected to interview based on some metric that indicates they are at the very least engaged, if not successful, is really just to understand. And maybe as a result of what they share with you, you find out what they define as being successful. And maybe that happens by helping them explain what is happening. And maybe in the process of explaining what is happening, there's a revelation of, and all of a sudden, now I can do this. Now this is better. Now that's better. I feel so much more relieved, et cetera, et cetera. And maybe it's not there. And maybe that's maybe that's the answer to the question. It's not about, are they successful? And maybe my framing of saying, do the interviews to find out what they're successful is, is not precise enough because it's not about finding out why they're successful. It's really just finding out what happened and it, using what you learn to find out what success means and how you can help people be successful. How do you translate these insights into the cold language of uh, metrics, analytics, and like specific success metric that, you know, is considered North Star or something like that? Can there even be one? Or is it always a combination of different um, features being used and something you can track at scale as a big company? Okay, Jane, we're really getting into it now. North Star metric, cool concept. Does it work for everyone? I don't think so. I think there's a lot of different, like what's the North Star metric of, I don't know, being an Apple product user. Maybe there is one, but you can do so many different things. How could you pick one? I'm sure there is one. I'm sure Apple knows when you're an Apple customer for life, but do you have the, like if you have as open-ended a question and product as Apple has, does it make sense to pick a North Star metric because you've been seeing all the SaaS blogs talk about being a North Star metric or having, does it make sense to pick a North Star metric because you've seen all the SaaS blogs talk about how you need one when you don't actually have the data scientists or any kind of expertise to possibly understand or define what that North Star metric is. Picking a metric just because you feel like you need to pick a metric doesn't necessarily mean that meeting that metric is going to generate anything positive or good for you or your customers. And to be honest, the question that I asked wasn't entirely correct because North Star metric also has a more uh, general meaning for the, for the business. It can be, uh, I don't know, MR per team member of course, and things of course. like that. Yeah. That's like a business North Star and like they all might correlate or not or anything like that. So it's, it's pretty vague. I think it's the perfect time when we should talk about the clarity of UX and the navigation and the way the app works is much more important than like the bells and whistles you add that oh, you call sure. user importing. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> for sure. And for applications like Google Docs and Photoshop and whatever, those applicable tools, they don't necessarily have to have success manager. 
which is a separate topic for discussion too, because these people look like like extortion specialists to me for some apps, especially B two B extortion. You know the, the like dedicated success managers that um, harass you with like their yeah. personable emails and stuff like that, and you really have things to do of your own, but they like demand you to get in touch and yeah. talk about your success and things like that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. This is kind of like breaking the log jam a little bit. So, so one of the things that is really cool about copywriting as an entry point to SaaS versus UX is that UX and copywriting, conversion copywriting are fairly similar. They're both using qualitative data. They're both using a lot of real human insights to build deliverables in onboarding sequences, features, emails, landing pages. One of the things that we're doing in copywriting is uh, using and marketing in general is playing a lot more with the stage of awareness than I, than is necessarily than what I have seen in UX. This may not be true of, of everyone, but are, do you know the stages of awareness? Have you heard of this before? Sure. Yeah. Sure. So you have your, but we can link to, we can link to an article by copy hackers, Perfect. for example, yeah. I think the most famous one. Copy hacker stages of awareness can help you see where somebody is with respect to their, how well they understand your product and the problem. Also, copy hackers, I believe it's intent and awareness matrix. I think she has a matrix like that. So there's a level of intent. So I'm thinking, I'm reflecting back on those six months when I tried using Photoshop and why it was, why I didn't really go anywhere. And all these people who harass you with their dedicated success managers, you and I, I in Photoshop, you and some of these tools are probably not super high intent in the moments when we're signing up to do all of those other things that we talked about before. Like you're coming in, you have to learn, like learning Photoshop doesn't happen in an afternoon. Even designing something in Photoshop doesn't happen. Like the first time you go into Photoshop, you don't know what you're doing. Like it's almost set up to be some kind of a failure. So maybe I would even say oh, Photoshop is not the greatest onboarding as of nine years ago. But there are times when I've seen those kinds of, not harassing, but like uh, persistent customer success management type emails go out and people respond like, oh my gosh, thank you so much. I need so much help. And so they're really, for that audience, it's it's exactly what they need. And to go back again to the the user interviews and like what to listen for and what to look for, that that level of intent and that that motivation, the the degree of pain and the fear or worry or awareness of it all can be a huge indicator that even something small can be successful. So somebody who is very intent on solving a problem, you might, you can hear it in their voice very often. Somebody who tried it and then gave up, you know, what, what else did you learn about them that makes them not necessarily a great fit customer? There's going to be some patterns when you start to see them, when you start to talk to people based on what they tell you and the way that they tell you Elliot, this has been brilliant, but I think it's time we wrap up today's episode. But before we do that, I still want to have a few more bits of advice. And one is, what are your favorite resources on becoming a better interviewer? Because clearly, successful customer interviews are the key to everything. So... um are there any giants that you, you stand on the shoulders of when it comes to conducting those? Or maybe some materials written by yourself that our listeners can tap into? 
I'll say that the jobs to be done methodology popularized by Bob Moesta and Chris Speck and the Rewired Group and everything that they publish has been enormously influential for me. Claire Swellentrop is another, she and Gialotti work at Elevate and Forget the Funnel. Their work is just exceptional. Oh my goodness. I feel like there's so many people on Twitter that I'm following right now that I'm, I'm like, I don't want to leave anyone out. So I don't want to say too many people, but those are the people I've learned the most from and worked the most from. And Joanna Weeb at Copy Hackers was one of the first people who said, you know, jobs to be done. This is how it applies to copy. And this is how copy and UX go together. She was one of the first people to put plant that idea in in my mind. So she's, of course, amazing. Um, how to actually run interviews. C- customer interviews can, for me, they're, it's, it's my most natural skill. When I first read about customer interviews and jobs to be done, it was almost like somebody was reflecting back to me the way that I kind of approach conversations in general. So for me, it was so natural of a skill that it's, it can be challenging to see, to go back and say, how do you look at this and how do you break it down and how do you dissect it? The way that I imagine is the case for many people who are really good at, I don't know, reading maps or development. Like it's, if it's your natural skill, it's your, your native expertise, not even expertise. It's just what you do. It's hard. So, but that said, what I have often found is that it's a muscle and just like, you know, the first couple of times you hear yourself on a microphone, oh, you're so self-conscious, but then you get over it because you've done it a bunch. I highly recommend anyone to Google like a jobs to be done interview script and see like, what are some good documentary style questions? Do 10 interviews and expect nothing to come out of them. They're just practice. You're building your muscle. You're getting really comfortable running interviews and you're seeing what you learn and what you observe and, and how people respond to you. And if you can, and this is another thing I haven't done yet. I want to do like, uh, have an offer where it's guided one-on-one jobs to be done training where like you plan, you're a founder, you plan your study and like you go out, you do your interviews and then I'm going to review your transcripts. And I'm going to tell you like, here's where you could probe more and here's where you could ask these other questions. So I'm, I, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. This is all part of going from copywriting to research and seeing like how, what that actually looks like in concrete terms. So yeah, cause you got to do it. You can't just read about it. You got to do it. It's like riding a bike. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. One book comes to mind that that's, you know, sort of the recent favorite here in the community is The Mom Test uh, by Rob Fitzpatrick. So it's really like I haven't read it. Down to earth. You haven't? No. I just I just started to be honest, it's been on our radar for ages, but only got to this week and pretty impressed with the first few chapters that I listened to. Uh, so I can recommend it because already in those uh he points out a ton of mistakes that can like excuse the answers altogether because all people lie and they want to make you feel good yeah. about yourself. Oh yeah. So he shows you around the ways how to avoid that and that's already precious. Yeah. Uh, so I'm gonna link to that in the show notes as well. <laughs> yeah, you know that's another thing too. But one of the things for getting around like lies and I like to like reflect a kind of directness and objectivity of like saying so upfront. I'm also so there's like regional differences. So being I'm from New Jersey, which is a part of the United States that's kind of known for being a little <laughs> thick skinned and a little bit rough and tumble. And I make that kind of clear when I like you have to so part of the thing is being in an interview is that there's two people there. It's you and the participant. So the participant's going to respond to you as a person, as who you are, as a unique individual, and your questions are part of it and how you ask them is part of it. But 
the vibe and the energy that you bring in is also going to affect it. So how do you, how can you, okay, I'm getting into the air next conversation for UI breakfast, but how can you set it up so that people feel comfortable being honest, that it's an expectation that when you tell them something negative, that that's actually like what you're there for. That's what you want to hear. There's that can come with practice and we can go over some techniques for that a little another time. Awesome. As we're wrapping up, can you tell our listeners one do and one don't when it comes to their user onboarding in SaaS? Do conduct at least seven to 10 jobs to be done style interviews. Don't put a slideshow anywhere at all. (laughs) (laughs) I love this. It's been an exceptional episode. Thanks so much for sharing your wisdom. And I wish you best of luck in your further projects and consulting practice. Thank you, Jane.